0: is an immersion into all things Echo. David Ferrario's film takes us on a tour of Umberto Echo's private library, guided by the author himself. Combining new footage with material he shot with Echo in 2015 for a video installation, Ferrario documents this incredible collection and the man who amassed it. As Echo leads us among the more than 50,000 volumes and his family reflects on his legacy, we also gain insight into the library of the mind of this vastly prolific and original thinker. Again, the film is called Umberto Eco, and we're joined today by the director, David Ferrario. David, welcome to Film School Radio.
1: My pleasure.
0: This is such a beautiful film, and it's about someone who I have to confess I did not know anything about until I saw this film. What a wonderful person, what a wonderful personality, what an open mind he has, and this eagerness, this drive to educate others in ways that are so enriching. Um, David, how did you get involved in this project? What prompted this to happen?
1: First of all, Umberto Eco is really one of the few Italian writers known all over the world, mainly because of the big success called The Name of the Rose that came out at the end of the 80s. But before being that, Umberto Eco was an intellectual and a scholar and the philosopher, uh, very, very appreciated in Italy uh, and abroad, because he was the first one to connect high-end philosophy and uh, pop culture. He was the, the first one in the 60s, being a philosopher, to start talking about television, for instance, and the people from television. By 2015, he was already 80-something, and I was asked by the Venice Biennale to do this thing with him, uh, As so and, of course, I knew him by fame, and I got to know him personally. We worked together for a couple of days on this project. Uh, and I think, I wouldn't say we really got friends, but I think uh, we appreciated each other. We started talking about other things because he had a strange relationship with movies. He didn't like movies that much because the, the, what he said about the name of the rose, for instance, which I think was a good film, the adaptation, by Arnaud, with Sean Connery. Uh, and I mean, it was a good film, I think, but he said, I can't see that movie because I now I have to see the faces of the monks because it's the faces of the actors. While I was making those stories up, I just could imagine them as I wanted them to be and not like they are in real life as an actor. So he had that problem with movies. And we started talking about doing something, but unfortunately, one year later, he died. And so that was the end of it. Uh, but the family, we kept in touch with the family. And when the family decided to give this huge library that he owned, which was made out of uh, 40,000 books uh, and 1,500 books, rare and antique books from the middle, uh, talking about uh, the the, the, the uh, 16th century and stuff like that, they came to me and they said, that we, should, we want to do something about that. Just film the, the, the books until they are here because they are donated to the state. I mean, Umberto Eco was, was such a great writer. You couldn't just be content with uh, show, showing the books and making a little thing. So a full-fledged movie came out in which the library is a starting point to discuss also his owner and the mind of his owner and his ideas, mainly because a lot of things that he said maybe 20 years ago, they're incredibly up to date and they is talking about the world as we live in now, especially when it talks about the web and the relationship between truth and reality. So and I think it's a movie which is a very useful movie
0: in a way because
1: it's uh, talking about the world that we live in.
0: I would have been happy with spending an afternoon with a camera planted in front of him and you and him in conversation, which we do see some version of that in the film. He was so, yeah, you're right, prescient. He was intellectual in a way that's relatable, which I think is so important and not a skill that a lot of people who are intellectuals possess in, in the way that he did. And I love that you opened with this the funeral, or basically the film opens with the people, yeah, the crush of people who were celebrating his life, we see in the in the beginning of the film. And I, for me, that was, uh, as I said, that was an eye-opener, and to see... Not only the amount of people, but also the the acclaim and the love that people had for him, which I thought was a great way to start.
1: I look what you tell me is, makes me happy because <laughs> it is exactly what the reason why I wanted to have that section in the beginning because I said let's let's think that somebody does not know Umberto Eco. We have to show how well known it was known, how well it was known all over the world, and that's why you see all these. News in different languages telling in the in the in prime time that Umberto Eco has died. And the second thing is that people who went to his funeral were not VIP people. It was just common people and readers. There was thousands of them waiting for to give him the last uh, salute. And it was just not like normal people. And does this guy going around with that sign saying, thank you, professor. Yes. <laughs> explains basically the feeling of, of those people. And yes, that, that's the idea. It was very popular. It was very loud and it was very bright and well-known, but always it was not that kind of intellectual that makes you feel like you don't know what he's talking about because he's telling all his ideas, even the most difficult are explained very clearly clearly in a way that anybody can understand. it. Because, again, he's talking about the world that we live in. And I think intellectual should be clear about that, not complicated.
0: And I didn't sense that in his conversations with others, his, it, it basically explaining, if that may not be exactly the right word I'm looking for, but talking about his philosophy. And what I, what I came away from, it was that it's the journey, not the destination. It seemed to me that he, he, his much of what he was talking about was predicated on as is. There's a section of the film, the beginnings and the ends, right? The the ticket taker at the theater, who only knows this part of this of the play, yeah. and for me personally, I completely relate to that. I think that has been kind of a bedrock feeling for me. You don't have to know the beginning, and you don't have to know the end. To me, right. is that am I am I being fair to? No, it's correct,
1: yes. Uh, I, I think that the real thing is uh, at a certain point of the movie, almost to the end, he says something. It's, it's actually an old radio recording from the 70s, but he said, my, in my whole life, I was had this obsession of language, because language is the thing that connects people at the same time, is the is the way people lie to each other. Because that's the interesting thing. It's this double face of language that you can speak with people now, Make you can get people closer than they are, but this is, at the same time, it's the beginning of a lie. And so, but probably lying is part of our relationship. So what is reality really? It, it is a lie or it is truth or it's the relationship between the, uh, and the representation of life. Because one thing happens and the moment I am starting telling that the thing has happened, it's another, it's another dimension. It's a story. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so it's all there, and but he, he kept asking himself this question, and he was asking himself this question in different times and different ages. So that makes him interesting. He, okay. When television became a big thing in Italy in the sixties, he didn't say, "Oh, it's bad. It's for vulgar people. It's just people stuff." No, he said, "Why is this happening? Why?" Truth is happening this way now. So he delved into that and he started thinking about television and then into the media and then again into uh, the web when it started out. And there are things about the web, as I said, that he said maybe 15 years ago that are incredibly uh, contemporary. He didn't speak about fake news, but basically that's what he's talking about in in a number of situations in the movie.
0: There's a duality to almost everything. There is this tension between truth and lies. And, you know, it also, he speaks well of the, idea. for me anyway, this is the way I interpret it, is the idea that since the dawn of the intellectual ability of humans to begin to understand the world around them, the one constant in all of that is storytelling helps explain things that are unexplainable. I mean, I imagine the first humans as we would know them today we're searching for an explanation as to why the sun came up and the and the moon followed. I they were So this idea of our inexhaustible desire to tell a story.
1: Yes, but at the same time, you know, it tells in in the in the uh, in the movie very clearly that this collection of antique books yeah. it's all made of fake books. <laughs> it's really it's sort of wrong books, books that don't tell the truth, uh, that are wrong, because it, it says, I have books by by Ptolemyus, who thought that the sun, that the third, was the center of the universe, mm-hmm. and not by Galileo, which was right. He was interesting in how logics can, our logical thought mm-hmm. can be wrong, because mm-hmm. we can be extremely wrong being extremely logic. And he was fascinated by that. It's not yeah. that being reasonable usually uh, brings you to truth, and that's 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 about that. That's the nature of language.
0: Oh, yeah, and but in some ways, lies are more interesting. Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, because <laughs> lies are stories. Lies basically are stories. Yeah, if they uh, weren't interesting, we wouldn't believe the lie, right? I mean, I they- think also the
1: world around us we think that the world around us is reality but it's really made mostly of stories that we hear and we tell other people yeah. the things that happen are little uh, especially these days when the, when the web has sort of uh, erased experience from real life everything it's on the screen it's on the web it's not in real life and but so you need stories and stories to make up your own world and he was very interested in that as a uh, as a scholar and uh, and then as a writer, because his stories are all about the relationship between
0: truth uh, and and lying. I'd like to remind our listeners that we're speaking with David Ferrario, and we're talking about this wonderful documentary film, Umberto Eco. It has just finished up a run at the Film Forum in New York, and it's on its way to Los Angeles, so please be looking for this. It is absolutely a delight. And uh, if you're already familiar with Umberto, You're going to find out more about him, more interesting things about him. If you're not like I am or was, you're going to be absolutely floored by not only his intellect, but by his personality, his openness, the kind of person that he was and an opportunity now to get to know him. Again, the film is called Umberto Eco. And once again, we are speaking with the director, David Ferrario. I mean, the center of it is Umberto, and how how compelling he is uh, about. And uh, let's let's take a half a step back in terms of we we talked a little bit about him, but where did he kind of where did he spring from? I mean, how did he become well known? What you mentioned that he wrote a, a book called The Name of the Rose, but let's give a little context, a little more context to his career and, and sort of how he became this luminary, if you will.
1: Uh, I would say he started. I mean, he he became uh, famous in an intellectual circle, at least in Italy and abroad, in the sixties, because he, he was one of the first philosophers who, who started to take seriously uh, mass media, television, and all that stuff, even pop culture, detective stories, the comics, and things like that. He applied philosophy. Philosopher's, philosophers' tools to explain that, yeah. uh, and that you know was very interesting, and and he did it in a very, let's say, clear and simple way. It was not difficult to understand, and he worked a lot in television himself. I'm talking about a certain kind of television at the beginning of the '60s in Italy, which would would be something more like PBS here, uh, not not commercial television. They, they didn't happened in Italy until the 80s. Really. Uh, after that, he became uh, a very well-known professor of philosophy at the university in Bologna, started writing books, started very being very recognized everywhere in Europe as a scholar. And then at a certain point in the 80s, uh, at the end of the 80s, uh, no, sorry, at the beginning of the 80s, 82, uh, he wrote this book almost by chance, It's called the name of the rose, but started out like something more of a scherzo, like something play with himself really. And uh, he tells a story in the movie about how it came to be just by chance. And the detective story set in the Middle Ages. I mean, at that point, that sounded like a crazy idea, but it turned out to be a worldwide success. It sold 80 million copies. A movie was made out of that, and all of a sudden, it became known as a best-seller, uh, a best-selling author all around the world. And after that, he wrote other six novels. It took eight years to, to write the second. Books that he tells were better than the first one, even if the first one kept being the most popular. He had a very <laughs> complicated uh, relationship with him. And with the money that he made with uh, uh, the name of the rose, he bought his wonderful house in Milan that you see in the movie. Uh, which is part, partly a place to live in, but partly a library yeah. where we kept forty thousand books, uh, contemporary books, and this collection of old books, and it's like a set. That's why basically the mo- most of the movies shot there because it's like a magical place full of books that doesn't look like a dead place because you know books are not exactly alive, <laughs> but uh, they are like a a dead it's like stories are waiting for you out there anytime that you pick up
0: a book oh well and i love that it's not laid out like you would walk into a library and here's the here's the literature there's the sciences he had it in his head how he wanted this forty thousand book collection to unfold in front of whoever came in there is that is that right yeah
1: it's it's interesting the, mo- the, the, the the day they talked to me, I mean, they showed to me the way it was organized and this stuff. It was more like a map. On a map, you need a vertical re- reference and an horizontal reference, and then you make a point. You where know, <laughs> well, they cross, that's the point. And most of his library was like that. It was not only, you know, Italian literature, because that. Well, you follow Italian literature, but then at a certain point, you start looking up in these huge shelves. And there you see that uh, uh, like popular literature, popular fiction from the 19th century Italian becomes the feuilleton Francais and then Sherlock Holmes and all the detective stories. So you follow the line and you you enter in another cultural direction. It was really like a map. It was really amazing and fascinating. It was not just like an archive. It was a a living thing.
0: and you end up with Superman.
1: <laughs> yes, and you end up with Superman, which is up there. As Clark can't Superman. Yeah. Yeah. Clark Kent, Kent and, can fly, and, <laughs> and it, the commissar on the last, and the after- <laughs> I think he was making the point that. Yeah, well, what he was trying to—that's more that, real that, than that funny line is saying basically uh, that religious people will <laughs> never agree on the <laughs> mysteries of religion, like uh, yes. you know is. Jesus Christ, the real son of a God, or not the nature of his divinity. You know, the Catholic have a certain idea the, the uh, Lutherans have another idea. The uh, uh, Orthodox have another idea. But he says, everybody has to agree on the fact that Clark anti-Superman. Nobody can deny that. So he says, fiction supplies you with the truer truth than religion.
0: I thought it was I was taken aback when he when I heard that and I you know just it's a simple truth in so many ways but it's profound as well throughout the film he is he is a bit of a uh, he's a prophet for reading books for exploring this world for 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 people to be literate I, th- I think that was, a, for me, an important takeaway is it, it showing you the the depth and breadth of all of the ways in which you can educate yourself and be entertained, to hear his evangelicalism in terms of how he wanted people to not be afraid of walking into a library and because there's so, so much there. Because
1: he says at a certain point in the movie, and don't read only important books, don't don't take people don't take seriously people tell you read all important books read anything that you want to read because you remember that in my young life I read something which you know adventure books books for kids yeah. and they were useful to me in the yeah. same way the Divine comedy was useful so it's a very nice thing to say about you know it's not about being serious all the time it's about just getting into this world of words and and sort of fantasizing fantasizing about that
0: i couldn't agree more i have watched what i have been told are the important films and they're all great no disputing that but i have also watched my share of lowbrow comedies and enjoyed them and uh, it's so affirming <laughs> to hear umberto talk about it in those terms umberto echo just finished up a run at the uh, Film Forum in New York and should be rolling out across the country. Hopefully, we'll be able to see this wherever you're hearing the sound of our conversation. So please be looking for Umberto Echo, whether it be in your hometown or whether it be in a pay-per-view or streaming service, but uh, it is such a delight. Navi Ferrari we see Umberto's widow at the very beginning of the film, as she's trying to find her way through the crowd at the memorial service. I'm curious about the relationship, how working with Umberto's family, how did that evolve or how did that become to be an important part of the filmmaking?
1: The fact is that we sort of made the film together. Them that came to me, we, because I had done this other thing in, with him in one year before he died, and I said, you, I mean, you were together, you work well with him you are the right guy to do this. And they wanted to do something very, very serious. And uh, with a lot of friends, very important scholars that would talk about the importance of Umberto and blah, blah, blah. And the moment I was listening to them, I said, look, this is going to be very boring. Uh, at least let's have these big intellectuals talk with you. So we have a conversation and just, you know, talking and talking very important stuff and blah, 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 because Umberto was not like that. And they said, oh, no, we don't want to be in in front of the camera. As it turns out, they are the only ones in front of the camera in this movie, because I think while we were filming, we developed a relationship and a mutual trust. I respected their, their, I mean, What can I say? Because they were open and very helpful, but at the same time, they were very reserved. But, and they, I think, appreciated what I was doing, very respectfully, but at the same time, with with the same irony, I hope that Umberto Eco would have used. So we met met and they are there. And I think in the end, this library, this apartment, which is more like a mansion, it's a set, and they're the actors of this set. Who better than the ones who were living there with Umberto could tell stories about that? Non-intellectual, not, you know, big important people, but just them. Because they're in, in themselves, they're very nice people and very funny. The widow, Renate, is great. She's telling these stories about the funeral. She At the beginning, she didn't want to have the funeral. In the movie, because I don't it's it's going to be too sentimental. People are cry. I don't want that. That was not. And I said, I don't want it to be sentimental. I just want to show the people were there. And uh, she starts telling this story about how she couldn't get almost. She couldn't go almost get into the funeral because there were too many people. And the fact that there was this abusement part of it. I mean, fun stories. And I said, yes. just just yes. tell us these stories. That's the that's the movie.
0: Well, David Ferrario, thank you so very much for your work here on Umberto Eco, as well as your work as the owner of a production company and as a distributor helping other filmmakers get their work out. So thank you for all of that and for spending some time with us here on Film School Radio.
1: My pleasure.